I want to talk about um, higher education and its relationship with um, lifelong learning and with uh, adults in particular. But I thought it useful to start with Newman because for most people, the kind of idea of the community of scholars underpins the frustrations people have with a cruder neoliberal alternative of the sort that we have at the moment. So he says, a university trains the great ordinary means to a great but ordinary end. It aims at raising the intellectual tone of a society. It's the education which gives, I mean, it's gendered, of course, a man uh, which, you know, was deemed to include women and any other human forms, uh, a clear conscious view of his own opinions and judgments, a truth in developing them, an eloquence in expressing them, and a force in urging them. And it seems to me that's a pretty good measure of whether we've got a higher education system worth having. So um, he's followed really by Thomas Carlyle. This quote will come up again later on, but it, it, which I also love, that it's the first duty of government to see that the people can think. Now, that's an interesting um, uh, take on, as it were, let's say the United States at the moment, or France at the moment, let alone the UK. Um, adult learning um, became a, a, a focus of um, institutional development um, from the mid-19th century. A Christian socialist, F.D. Morris, was the person who was the first head of the Working Men's College, which we like to celebrate as the beginning of the enlightened and emancipatory uh, uh, tradition that Lynn, Lynn was talking about and I worked in for most of my life. But his view about learners was, I wouldn't let them have a least voice in determining what we shall teach or not teach or how we shall teach. We may have social meetings with them. We may have conversations with them individually, but no education will go on if we have general tumultuous assemblies to discuss what has been done or what is to be done. And, um, well, <laughs> it's rather good, that. Um, uh, J.F.C. Harrison included that in his um, book, but also Thomas um, Kelly quotes. Uh, by the turn of the century, and Tawny marching off into the North Staffordshire coalfields to work with miners um, in, a, in uncompromisingly intellectually serious teaching of economic history, um, you have a different relationship with learners, adults. He talked to them as man to man, neither claiming authority nor man to man again, sorry, uh, neither claiming authority nor asking for unquestioned agreement. But as he talked, the breadth and quality of his mind and the meticulous accuracy of his scholarship reflected itself in the work of his students and established the standard of their thought. Well, you know, I've often wished that such a thing might have been said about oneself. <laughs> but uh, a bit like Newman, it's an important benchmark for thinking about the relationship and role between teacher facilitator and learner within within the tradition. And um, uh, Mary Stocks quotes uh, him in her study of the WEA. I mean, following on from Tawney's experience of expecting people uh, after a full day in the mines and a good, long, serious session to write 12 um, uh, essays in the course of a term and to commit themselves to a three-year tutorial study, 
you see the emergence of the university extramural rigorous program of education for people who had been previously denied opportunity, very much aimed at the aristocracy of labour and at men. Um, uh, um, I mean, here, I thought it was a nice picture, it's a 1908 uh, Oxford uh, summer school. It's very interesting how, um, you know, just to make the point that elite universities, uh, which uh, by and large run a mile from widening participation agendas were early into the extramural tradition and, and although it's distorted into mainly being CPD continue to have a, a, a commitment too um, and their thinking and work um, emerged in uh, the end of the first world war as well as homes fit for heroes we thought we ought to have an adult education system fit for heroes the ministry of reconstruction created a, a committee on adult education which I think is unquestionably the high watermark of articulation of the values of the work. And they, they argue the provision of liberal education for adults should be regarded by universities as a normal and necessary part of their functions. They should establish extramural departments and adult education should cater for the varied needs and tastes of the people, including not only citizenship studies, but science, music and languages, literature and drama and craftsmanship. And I have to say, uh, after kind of 25 years of bullying ministers about adult learning policy, the only one who ever came remotely close to that conception was David Blunkett in the uh, late 1990s. They argued, by, by education we mean all the deliberate efforts by which men and women attempt to... Men and women! First, uh, attempt to satisfy their thirst for knowledge, to equip themselves for their responsibilities as citizens and members of society, or to find opportunities for self-expression. I know you can read this stuff, but I'm uh, articulating it out loud because it has a, a, a sonority to it, a claiming of the public space, like those old Victorian photographs of... of men. <laughs> um, right, and providers should fund as wide a possible a range of studies. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful if you thought of the state as a provider now of higher education? Any other standards puts the state in a position of censorship which it ought not to be expected to take. It would inevitably give rise to a differentiation between the knowledge which in the opinion of the state it is desirable to disseminate and knowledge, the diffusion of which should not be encouraged. Well, actually, I think most of the history since the beginning of the 1990s um, is the state having forgotten that. The state could indeed hardly avoid the charge of manufacturing public opinion. Well, um, I want to talk... It says Raymond Williams again, but actually this is the first time, I think. <laughs> Ray... Um, if you follow through from that three-year tutorial, because the expansion of extramural provision after the 1919 Act, the government accepted the rules, funded um, universities, funded the Workers' Education Association, and local authorities um, developed uh, a much more craft and, uh, and um, pra practical-based uh, form of adult education. But, um, Raymond Williams, in 1961, spoke at the annual conference of 
the organisation I used to run, National Institute of Adult Education, on a Sunday morning, he says, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, <laughs> sermon time, he says, and begins to go on about there being three strands of thinking about education more generally in Britain. And I, I thought it was quite interesting to, to see these in terms of where current uh, policy debates about the role of higher education sits. So he, he distinguishes between old humanists, industrial trainers, and public educators. Well, uh, I've got a picture of T.S. Eliot. I mean, the belief that education is above all the repository of certain values, that education is an ideal process that should resist as far as possible the claim, the pushy pushing claims of the world. I mean, no instrumentalism here, thank you very much. But if the, if the values of education are extended too far, they will end up diluted and destroyed. Um, well, Eliot, clearly, you know, you write a poem, you need 16 languages really to get a grip on. You can see there's a, there, there's a threshold of engagement that's interesting. And clearly in the 1960s, when the move to expand participation for undergraduates um, was accelerated post-Robbins, you got black papers um, produced which were exactly, as it were, old humanist opinion. Then there's the industrial trainers who think that the purpose of education is to fit people to earn their living, and we've heard a bit about that this morning. Education as a key component of a competitive economy, one might say, in a globalised world, and that the skills for work are best learned young. Uh, Alan Johnson, a man much admired, <laughs> with very deeply bad views on adult learning, since he, he not only said we need plumbing, not Pilates, he also got rid of ELQs about people being able to study at an equivalent or lower level than their existing high, highest level of qualifications. The wonderful thing about the plumbing and Pilates, I can't resist putting this in, might take a minute more than my talk. Tom, um, a friend of mine who was the head of Union uh, um, Learn, um, had a plumber in at the same time as the, these debates were going on. And he asked the man why he didn't take on apprentices in the plumbing, why uh, plumbers didn't. And he said, well, it's because as soon as they're qualified, they're the competition. So there's not a lot of motivation for plumbers, he said, until they reach the, about the age of 40. I'm afraid this is uh, performativity in a way. And it says, by this stage, it's getting harder to climb under the bath to fiddle about with the pipes. He said, but I don't need one, he says, because I do Pilates. And, <laughs> um, and so that industrial trainers should recognise it's quite a powerful uh, current uh, view. I, I think this is really, you know, very helpful way of thinking about public policy and lifelong learning. Um, so if we think uh, public educators broadly agree with Carlyle and they see the process of society as itself a process of education. And again, I think quite a lot of what we were discussing this morning about the recognition issues and about the ways in which you read yourself by the way other people um, read you um, is thrown up by this. But he identifies two subgroups within public educators. There are the Victorian philanthropists who like to do good to the poor <laughs> and, uh, you know, who bring the delights of their own education to uh, the great unwashed. And then there are co-educators who make um, the learning processes together for whom 
the idea about facilitation, about valuing the experience people bring with them to their learning and so on um, are, are important. And I think um, um, it's quite significant, Williams's analysis, and that it explains in a way that role of public educator to look at the way in which adult studies, university adult studies, generated cultural studies before it moved into the academy. And if you think about the kind of great post-war settlement of ideas, then uh, Edward Thompson's study of um, the history of the working classes in Britain, Williams's Culture and Society and the Long Revolution, and Hoggart's uh, Uses of Literacy had a tremendous effect on the idea that um, culture is ordinary, to use a phrase of, uh, of an essay of um, Williams's, and that there are um, the role of a university is not only the dissemination, as it were, of elite knowledges um, discovered through systematic um, and obscure research, but also through the articulation and support of the voice of a, a much wider um, um, diversity of communities. So cultural studies seem to me to be a significant democratic dynamic in that uh, lifelong learning dimension of um, higher education extramural work. And I, I pulled up a picture of Ken Coates and Richard Silburn's study, Poverty, the Forgotten Englishman, which looked at and analysed the experience of extremely poor working class kids in Nottingham in the 60s and 70s to say that this kind of work not only had an impact on thinking about what's the role of lifelong learning within higher education but also to a significant extent set an agenda about how a social welfare society should think. Then um, roll forwards a few years and you get second wave feminism again being generated in adult education outside of the academy before women's studies um, becomes uh, um, and gender studies become much more um, mainstreamed. Um, I remember, uh, I am old, I remember with um, uh, Sterling Smith of the WEA coordinating the first national women's studies conference. Of course we worked in the crash, but uh, you know it's illustrative one of men having the spaces to be able to make those decisions at the time. And, and secondly, the incredible variety and explosion of ideas that second wave feminism brought to helping all of us reconfigure at least how we thought, even if some of us were socialised very negatively. So I thought that was a second uh, phase of the democratisation of ideas and the reframing of thinking about how, what kind of a society we wanted to become through the, the use of uh, lifelong learning. There were a lot of post-war developments. I mean, most notably, I think, the creation of the o Open University, transforming the numbers of people who participate part-time in Britain and growing to become the largest provider of HE, but also certainly to adults. Um, then access courses in, from the 1970s. I mean, these worked on the broad principle that if you were running a department in a poly and 
you have the choice of falling in love with adults or closing the department down. Remarkably, there was an enthusiasm for adult learning emerged. Um, um, but more seriously, um, effective partnerships between higher education institutions and further education institutions to offer um, routes to people who had had no prior confidence to engage with learning so that the, the steps were manageable and the world didn't fall down if you decided to get off the escalator at some point. Absolutely significant impact on women's participation and by at least some ethnic minorities and some impact in the 70s and 80s on participation by the least affluent. Doubling and mature student entrance to universities between the mid-80s and mid-90s but that was particularly concentrated in post-92 institutions, which, to go back to Lynn's talk this morning, the kind of social Darwinism that we see in higher education between different kinds of institutions and the different outcomes that you can expect uh, are uh, reinforced by the fact that adult graduates altogether don't get the kind of economic um, wins and uh, increases in lifetime earnings, anything like um, young people do. So key milestones in this policy development, I mean, I'm trying to do this lightly, but <laughs> it's a pretty depressing story, really. <laughs> Robbins in 62, um, you know, higher education for anyone who benefit from it, leading to uh, plate glass universities and to advance vocational institutions like Bath or Surrey being um, turned into universities. Crossland creating polytechnics in 1965 to value advanced vocational education and to try to undo some of the damage of the 44 Act with its privileging of grammar schools. Um, it's very interesting to think what will be the next thing after Mrs May, really. <laughs> if everybody's going to have a grammar school on their doorstep. Then Blair's 50% HE target looks great, unless you look at the other 50%. And I haven't got the figure up, but in um, this wonderful paper from the Institute for Government about the failure of public policy for further education, it's absolutely stark statistics that we now spend $17.5 of public funding on higher education and $1.5 billion on further education and then we're astonished that we think that FE is uh, unstable and doesn't do quite what you would ideally like it to do. So from 2003 HE student fees and I thought you captured really well that there are losses as well as gains whichever policy line you take on that since there is something complicated about saying it should be free for everybody and paid for by the people who don't benefit from it which is you know at least in part true, and then fee hikes more recently. And since the early 90s, as when um, extramural provision got shifted from a separate budget into mainstream university budgets, extramural and continuing education departments have closed at a really steady rate because, of course, the metrics of part-time education can't simply be compared with the ease of flogging a full-time course to someone where you get the money, more or less, whether they come or not. Um, uh, 
so from the beginning, accelerating after discrete government funding was included. And those that survive moving, as with the Oxbridge ones actually, primarily to modular certificated courses and targeting CPD. Absolutely not to argue against that key role, but that the kind of broad church of Newman's idea isn't quite captured by what we now do. Then along came David Blunkett, and uh, I mean, his preface to the learning age is a reminder of a Newman-like commitment to the role learning can play in transforming people's lives, or as Tom Schuller and his colleagues point out, helping people sustain their lives too. It's not only absolute magical transformation, but as well as securing our economic future, learning's a wider contribution. It helps make ours a civilised society, develops the spiritual side of our lives, and promotes active citizenship. Learning enables people to play a full part in their community, strengthens the family, the neighbourhood, and consequently the nation. It helps us fulfil our potential and opens doors to love of music, art, and literature. And that's why we value learning for its own sake, is the quality of opportunity it brings. Now, uh, I, I shot past what I was going to read out of Raymond Williams's, which fits all this, which was uh, describing his, um, his work as an extramural tutor. He describes how by about week four, someone in a rather shuffly way pulls a great wadge of paper out of their, of their bag and you discover you have a, a nascent novelist in your class or a poet or, a, or a, a writer of major social research, highlighting how important it is to start from a recognition that your students will have very different and, and rich experiences along with you. I thought Bl I mean, Blunkett understood all that remarkably well. Um, and in his years, there were, I could have put down 15 major initiatives, most of which died, but um, all of which were interesting in their way. The University for Industry, with the idea, which people said was neither a university nor for industry, but <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, bringing um, what the OU had created for higher education students as a, a model to a wider community of, uh, of learners through the use of online and, uh, and blended learning. An e-university, which was a potty idea in that, you, you know, a bit like extramural provision, once the open universities funding had got mainstreamed, it was a competitor with other universities instead of an extraordinary national investment in capacity to... Oh, odd, oddly, more, more recently with the MOOCs, um, we found a way of, of bringing those kind of technologies back into a more common and shared picture. But it created the National Health Service University, which the idea was um, that you know, if you looked at the way the NHS spent its money on learning, overwhelmingly on consultants, doctors, um, paramedics and so on, and that porters and cleaners got almost nothing in MRSA clearly, <laughs> or if you looked at nurses who couldn't interpret um, um, quantities in terms of prescriptions leading to what it used to call the atrogenic diseases, diseases caused by the medical profession. Um, 
individual learning accounts which put money into everybody's pockets and um, unfortunately had no controls over who was offering the provision and so ended up with very large amounts of fraud but I think was really closed down because it worked too well and the Treasury got frightened of it. Um, so widening participation. Um, now I've put where this comes from but I can't remember where I stole the, the slide from so this isn't on my references at the end. Whereas in the mid-1990s, most institutions thought their widening participation was synonymous with their policies on mature learners, that's really not been true since the late 1990s. Hefsey's em emphasis has turned towards increasing the participation of younger learners from lower economic, socioeconomic groups. Absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. But if you target their parents and themselves, you don't have to get a better bang for your bucks. Um, so, in all of this, what might be seen as the purposes of higher education by Deering, the end of the 90s, enabling individual academic excellence, pursuing the frontiers of knowledge, equipping the workforce with skills and knowledge and creating a civic and inclusive uh, society. Um, then Bill Rammel, the Vice-Chancellor now of uh, Bedfordshire, was for a period minister I worked with him very closely he made decisions very quickly and came to regret them over time <laughs> believed his civil servants but um, so we're going to need a lot more mature people in higher education he said this is about 12 years ago over the next decade it's no good expecting large numbers of adults with careers families mortgages to behave like 18 year olds and go off to university full-time it's just not going to happen for most of the 171 HE institutions gone up since then the consequences of all that are going to be very challenging. They're going to have to deal with older, possibly more demanding, and certainly more discerning students, educating more part-timers, and more students who aren't just part-time, but who undertake most of their learning in the workplace or at home. I mean, this kind of model is so completely off the agenda within a decade that we have to ask ourselves, why have we let this happen, really? Um, so more recently, we've seen, I mentioned ELQs and their disappearance, which wiped out a significant role of higher education as mid-career um, um, managing people's changes later in their career. Bologna, uh, the standardization of European uh, certification, the positive thing on one hand, limiting you on the other. Uh, three minutes, yeah, I've more or less finished. Um, uh, anyway, you can see those all then. Uh, and higher education, um, the last five years, 26% budget increase. At the same time, FE has experienced a 24% um, decrease, yet it's at the level of skills that we're looking for people's competence. Um, it, it's between HE and FE. 56% fall in part-time study and falls to in postgraduate study. I suppose you could say MOOCs are a possible outcome, but then 7% completion rate, they're, uh, you know, they're a good idea. So at the end, I don't need to say it, I'm going to leave on the, on the wall um, my conditions for lifelong learning in HE to thrive. And um, if all of those things were done, we would have a happier tomorrow. That's <laughs> <it. Thank you. laughs>